2: We find out how Brexit could be changing the way that Brits eat. If you're not getting your food from the European Union, where Britain gets 30% directly, well, where are you going to get it from? As I put very succinctly, bye-bye fresh peaches from Italy, hello tinned peaches from Florida. Bye-bye fresh oranges, hello tinned oranges. Bye-bye free-range beef, hello hormone-injected beef. Tune in to hear about the UK's struggle to stabilize its food system on Meat and 3, HRN's Weekly Food News Roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from full service radio at the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C., and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. So today's episode is going to be a little bit different from our usual lineup. We're going to be talking about an issue that does involve farming, but it really extends far beyond agriculture and really affects all of us. I'm, I'm taking a little bit of liberty with the, the farm report, um, but we're, we are going to talk about farmers, don't worry. Um, but the issue is perfluorinated chemicals. So PFOA, PFOS are some of the acronyms that you're going to be hearing. And these are chemicals that have been manufactured for many, many decades and are in so many products we use, but they were unregulated chemicals that the public was unaware of. For a very long time you may have heard of them in the news recently referred to as forever chemicals because well they never go away um they stick around in the environment and the human body for well probably forever so also one kind of uh, link to agriculture the company at the heart of the story is dupont which also made agricultural chemicals like herbicides for a very long time although that agriculture division has now been spun off into a different company called Corteva. So to get into all this, um, today I have Robert Bilott, a lawyer who essentially uncovered the existence and dangers of these chemicals at a time when the public and even regulatory agencies were unaware of them. Rob, thank you so much for joining me.
3: Well, thank you for having me.
2: Sorry about that super long intro, but
3: <laughs> I was,
2: you know, thinking about uh, having you on. I just finished the book and I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you. And, and I was thinking, you know, my show's The Farm Report. Does it have enough to do with farming? And then I thought, you know what, this is a really important issue and we're just going to go with it because I want to talk about it. So, um, Sure. Yeah. So, and where are you calling in from?
3: I am calling in from Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky area.
2: Okay, perfect. Um, so, your new book—it's let, let me just a uh, quick backtrack. The book is called "Exposure: Poison Water, Corporate Greed, and One Lawyer's Twenty-Year Battle Against DuPont." Um, and you know, I want to—I wanted to just quickly read this this one sentence from the book because at one point, you know, you're talking about. Um, what's happening, and and you write, this was more the stuff of Hollywood thrillers than real life. And I thought that was kind of funny, because this year, a movie came out that also tells the story, right? It's called Dark Waters, and um, you are played by Mark Ruffalo. Um, What was it like to see your story on the big screen?
3: Definitely surreal, you know, but also at the same time, just extremely encouraging, you know, and to to see this story finally coming out to a wider audience. Um, And so, you know, to, to finally have people all across the country and now, you know, actually all over the world, finally learning about what these chemicals are, how we've been exposed and what we can do to hopefully um, start addressing what has become really a worldwide contamination problem,
2: right, absolutely. And yes, yeah, so i I started with the Hollywood question because this is a it's a really serious topic, right? Um, so So let's kind of start at the beginning. So the story starts with a farmer. so you are working right. as a corporate defense lawyer, and this West Virginia dairy farmer starts hounding you about his cows dying so Tell us a little bit about that farmer about Earl and what that was like um especially you know it really struck me that you were kind of in these two different worlds and here's this guy coming to you and you didn't really have a reason to pay attention and you did so tell a little bit about like how that all went down
3: Sure you know I uh, graduated from law school in 1990 mm-hmm. and uh, over the next 8 years uh, I was working at, and I'm actually still at the same law firm now, 30 years, but I started working at the firm of Taft, Stettinius, and Hollister in Cincinnati, Ohio. And most of what I was doing in their environmental group uh, between 1990 and 1998 was helping our corporate clients, uh, which included a lot of big chemical companies, try to comply with all the different state and federal environmental rules and regulations. Um, and it was in fall of 1998 that I got a call from Wilbur Tennant, um, who was raising cattle in uh, West Virginia, right mm-hmm. outside of Parkersburg, which led me on a very different path at that point, which took the next 20 years.
2: Right. And and he came to you. What, what about his story made you say, oh, I need to go look into this and, you know, this is something that I'm going to pursue when it was so far from the other work you were doing.
3: You know, he called me uh, and started really um, kind of rattling off at a fairly agitated pace uh, okay. that he was having all kinds of trouble with cattle on his property that they were dropping dead. He had lost over a hundred animals by the time he called me in '98, and he was seeing all kinds of impacts in neighboring wildlife as well, with with the deer, the fish, the 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 birds in the area, and he was convinced that it was w- something in the water they were drinking from a landfill next to his property, he could see white foaming water coming out of the discharge pipe from this landfill, and that uh, was flowing into the creek that happened Mm -hmm. to run through his property where his cattle were grazing. And he was uh, Mm -hmm. rattling all this off, and this certainly was not the kind of thing I handled uh, in my work defending chemical companies at the time, Mm -hmm. but then he mentioned that he had gotten my name from my grandmother. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I stopped and paid a little more attention at that point. Um, It it so happens that my grandmother and mom's family all um, grew up in uh, that area outside of Parkersburg. And Mr. Tennant had been really trying to find a lawyer that could help him and nobody there locally really wanted to talk to him because the landfill was owned by one of the biggest employers in town, the Mm -hmm. DuPont Company. So when I heard that he had been referred to me through contact with my grandmother, I I said, sure, why don't you bring whatever information you have? We'll take a look at it and see if we can help you. So it really was that family connection that, um, that really uh, was able to, um, you know, connect the two of us.
2: Right. Absolutely. That kind of personal element can change things, right? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it, it sounded like when you first took on the case, you thought that it would kind of be an open and shut issue. You know, you'd figure out what whatever had been going on. Maybe they were accidentally, something was leaking into the creek, and you'd, you know, get a settlement for him, and it would be over. And But in the process, it you know, it sort of dra- drags on and drags on, and you discover that the issue really extended way beyond um, contamination of his creek. And wh- what's the moment where you, where you realize, like, this is a way bigger issue, like I'm getting into something here that is gonna extend beyond this lawsuit.
3: Yeah, you're you're exactly right. When I first took on the case, we thought this would be rather straightforward. yeah, This was a regulated landfill that was governed by a permit issued by the state of West Virginia. So I figured we would be able to pull those permits and take a look at whatever regulated listed hazardous materials or regulated pollutants were there and maybe something was you know, a little too high um, in the discharge and we'd be able to get to the bottom of it pretty quickly. But um, after starting to dig through the files from the state, from the company, we really weren't finding anything that would explain what we were seeing. So we finally uh, broadened our scope. Um, We ended up bringing a lawsuit against DuPont to try to get access to their documents and started digging in. And it was at one point, you know, about a year, a year and a half into that process, where we finally stumbled upon a a document that mentioned a chemical called PFOA, Mm -hmm. something I had never heard of um, and couldn't really find any information about. Um, But it ended up there were massive quantities of this chemical that had been disposed of in this landfill um, and that it uh, could cause foam of the nature that we were seeing in the water. And it had all kinds of potential toxic effects on animals, including cancer, Mm -hmm. um, that were well known to the company. But unfortunately, what we were seeing in the documents is really nobody else outside the company really knew about this. It was not only in the landfill, but we found out it was to the public water supply of the entire surrounding community and had been there likely for decades without anyone knowing what was happening
2: right and i mean and the. (laughs) i think you're getting another call please don't take it (laughs) (laughs) um i think i i think it's crazy too because you're trying to figure out what this chemical is right and and whether or not it's toxic and and there's data that you're that you're going through from dupont's own files but Um, You're also going to experts and, you know, outside chemists or, you know, experts on toxicology. And a lot of people had no, even experts in the field didn't know what it was at that point, right?
3: That's right, because what we learned was this was a chemical, this PFOA, that had been invented right after World War II. Um, by the 3M company up in Minnesota, and DuPont was purchasing it to use in making of Teflon at their plant in West Virginia. Well, this was decades before there was a U.S. EPA, mm. before there was a FDA, or you know, a lot of the government um, entities that we have now regulating chemicals. So these chemicals were being pumped out into the environment, shipped down to West Virginia. DuPont was using them, pumping them into the Ohio River as waste into the air you know putting them in sludge that was deposited in landfills for decades um and because those chemicals were already sort of out on out in the environment when some of the first federal regulations came out in the 1970s regulating new chemicals going out into the market. Unfortunately, this chemical and related chemicals called PFAS, um, mm. you know, there's lots of them in that chemical family, uh, kind of sailed under the, the, the radar screen of the agencies. The agencies were focused on the new chemicals, and for these existing chemicals, the companies that were using them were essentially told it was up to them to alert the EPA if they thought there was any kind of risk or substantial harm. And what we were seeing is despite plenty of evidence uh, internally that this chemical presented all kinds of potential harm to animals and wildlife and to humans, that um, unfortunately that information was not being um, uh, provided to the EPA. The agency was not being alerted to any of it.
2: Right. And, you know, and you're... A lot of you, I mean, one thing that really struck me about the story is you're kind of piecing this all together just through documents little by little. And, I mean, just, you know, on a personal note, your ability to go through documents, just hundreds of thousands of pages, and and find all of this and piece it together, it it really, really uh, blew my mind a little bit. I was like, man, it really uh, makes me... uh, kind of have respect for lawyers that, that do this and are able to uncover um, so much from piles of paper, you know, it was really, really incredible. Um,
3: Thank you, you know, <laughs> it's because it's a lot of that was, uh, you know, when I first started digging in and reading it, I was having a hard time believing what I was reading. Yeah. Um, you know, which made me dig in even more and try to find more and more information to explain, you know, was I really reading this correctly? And was this really happening?
2: right well and you know that that leads me to another question which is i'm curious about your your thinking on on like corporate power at this point because you know you're a defense lawyer representing chemical companies and you decide to do this and then you uncover this massive cover-up and um you know we talk a lot on the farm report um, about kind of companies that exercise power at the expense of farmers and the environment um, that happens a lot in agriculture today because it 's very consolidated um, how did How did this experience um this realization you were coming to? how did it affect your world view yeah
3: you know, that's one of the things I try to explore in in detail in the book mm-hmm. exposure uh, is' just how complicated this whole system was you know you had not only um, this very complicated system of how the chemicals were regulated you had this system for how science uh made its way out to the public into uh people that were using these chemicals like farmers um, you know or or people in the public um, you know through the publication and peer review process how how the uh legal system really impacts, you know, who has the burden to prove whether these chemicals are causing harm, who has the burden to, you know, to disclose and tell people what was going on. Just a lot of these different um, systems that were in place really created this problem, um, you know, it created this situation when I was, you know, really sort of discovering this and realizing what was going on around late 2000, early 2001. You know, at one point, you know, it hit me. I'm looking at a problem here that went far beyond Uh, Mr. Tennant and his farm and the animals there on his farm in West Virginia, Mm -hmm. this was a chemical that was now, uh, I knew, in the drinking water of the entire community, tens of thousands of people. And not only that, likely in water all over the country and in the blood of virtually every person in the country, and nobody really was paying any attention. And unfortunately, I think most of our our regulatory agencies and most of the public was completely unaware this was happening, yet it was going on for decade after decade. So the book really tries to explore, you know, how does that happen? (laughs) How do you have a situation like that happen in the United States in modern times where you can have worldwide contamination with toxic chemicals that are in animals and humans all over the planet and really no one being aware of it until decades after it's happened.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, you mentioned that there was part of it is that these chemicals were invented before some of the um, some of the regulations were in place that we do have now. Right. So things have maybe gotten a little bit better. Do do you think that things are a lot better now compared to uh, like, if, if a chemical like this is invented now, is the process a lot better
3: well, you know, th- this this situation with PFOA was actually used as an example um, f- to suggest why some of these federal laws needed to be revamped mm. um, and strengthened. And in fact, the main law that was governing you know, uh, the the EPA's ability to regulate new chemicals coming on the market, the Toxic Substances Control Act, right. which had come out in 1976, was finally uh, amended and updated in 2016. And this was cited as one of the reasons by several, you know, a lot of organizations that were supporting the update. Unfortunately, um, I think the jury's still out on the extent to which those changes have really fixed the problem, because uh, what's happening now is As information has finally come out about this chemical, PFOA, and some of the related chemicals, um, uh, there have been companies that have simply switched. They've changed one or two molecules and brought out what they are calling new or replacement Mm -hmm. chemicals that unfortunately are very similar to the ones they've replaced. Yet uh, there isn't much known and there isn't much being required um, about the, you know, to tell us about the toxicity of these chemicals before they're being allowed to be used, put, in, put out into the environment, you know, getting into people and animals and food and et cetera. And it's now that, you know, now we, here we are again, you know, playing catch up, trying to figure out, um, you know, what, what is the true impact from these new replacement chemicals as well. Yeah. So the system still has a long way to go to, be, um, uh, to address this problem.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we have to take a quick break. Um, When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about the health risks and um, some of the the different efforts that are happening now um, to regulate and call more attention to these chemicals. Uh, We'll be right back.
1: All
2: right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm here with Rob Billott. We're talking about his new book, Exposure, um, which is also portrayed in the new movie, Dark Waters. And we've been talking sort of about how you got into this story and and how you discovered um, PFAS chemicals, PFOA. Um, it's like every time I say it, I'm like, should I, say, should I reference PFAS, should I say PFOA? Not the, the easiest group of chemicals to talk about, right? <laughs> yeah. That's right. I'm sure you that's encounter that.
3: <laughs> a lot of folks now are referring to them by the moniker "forever chemical." Yeah. Um, you know, which is um, easier to remember, frankly, than the alphabet soup that's been used for many <laughs> years. Which, frankly, I think has led to it being so confusing. Just mm. all these different names and different different acronyms. But you know, "forever chemical" term really kind of captures the essence of why we're so concerned about these chemicals once they get out in the environment. They cannot be broken down under normal biological conditions. So they're, they're there forever.
2: Yeah. And you mentioned earlier, they're, so they're there forever. And they're also, at this point, really in almost everyone's blood, right? We kind of are starting to learn this. Um, so you have been on this journey of figuring out what DuPont knew, what kind of exposure to the chemical existed for people living where it was dumped, but also people now around the world. And then also what that exposure meant is sort of the, the most important thing, right? And, right. Um, you know, in the beginning there was very little science other than the studies from the company itself on what the actual risks were. Um, how far have we come? What, what do we know about the known health risks?
3: Um, well, uh, what we've, where we've come is over the last 20 years, We've been able to bring out to the public um, and make available to the scientific world, the regulatory world, what frankly has been known for many, many decades inside uh, DuPont and also to some degree, to the same extent, 3M company, mm. about the toxicity and potential harm of these chemicals. I mean, we're, uh, when, you, when you sit back and look at what was in the internal files, you've got animal studies and toxicity testing back in the 50s and 60s uh, that were showing all kinds of multiple um, adverse effects and different types of animal species, multiple species. By the 1980s, PFOA was being um, labeled by DuPont itself internally as a confirmed animal carcinogen hmm. uh, because of animal studies that had been done confirming it caused testicular tumors, um, pancreatic and liver tumors as well. And then you also had human data uh, from the workers who were being tracked. You know, as this chemical gets out in our environment, it also has a, a real tendency to stick in our blood, in Mm -hmm. an animal blood, and it builds up over time. So it's not only persistent, but it's bioaccumulative. So you've got these three um, effects, you know, toxicity, persistence, and bioaccumulation combined for this chemical. Um, But a lot of that was internal uh, data. And um, although the, the evidence was pretty clear that it presented risks to animals and humans, you know DuPont was refuting that and, and disclaiming those effects. So mm-hmm. we ended up having to confirm through independent scientists as mm-hmm. part of our legal case you know, that these effects were real. And so what we now know, because of um, some of the probably the most comprehensive human studies ever done on a chemical that we set up through our um, litigation, out in West Virginia and Ohio that PFOA, for example, has now been um, linked by independent scientists looking at all of the data, animal and human, mm-hmm. uh, to be linked with six diseases, including two types of cancer, testicular cancer and kidney cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because we do have this wealth of data about PFOA and to, uh, to some degree also some um, significant data about a related chemical, PFOs, which has been used in firefighting Foams and Scotchgard. That's what's prompted the scientific community, the regulatory community, to really, um, you know, send up the red flags that these are chemicals we need to be addressing now and dealing with not only in our environment, but you know, making sure people do not continue to be exposed, to make sure they're not in our food supply, they're not in our food packaging. Um, you know, these chemicals were used for quite some time in so many different. Products Not just Teflon pans, but also food wrapping and yeah. packaging um, so the, it's there's widespread exposure, and that 's why we end up with virtually every person on the planet and every animal having these things in their blood at this point. Babies are born already with these chemicals in their blood
2: that, yeah and and so we know now that you know there are these links to these very specific you know adverse um, Outcomes in terms of human health, um, and then we also know that there's widespread exposure. But I guess what we we don't really know what levels like people are being exposed, right? Like, should should it, the average person be concerned? I mean, I was just looking at that map. Um, the Environmental Working Group put out a map of um, can water around the country, water public water systems that are contaminated with PFOA and PFOS. Right. And, I mean, it's it. You look at it, and the dots are just everywhere (laughs) it's like I guess you have to you know you can click and you can see the exact levels is that what you recommend that people kind of check the the level they're being exposed to but I mean I guess that's not even really possible because you don't know where else you might be exposed but I'm just curious like how how do you communicate with people about like how worried or if if they're if people should really be kind of thinking about this um, in their daily lives
3: that is something I think Excuse me, it is something I think we all should be aware of, and being, and, and do what we can to, to to identify whether or not we are in an area that has some pretty significant exposure potential um, and what we can do to, to hopefully minimize our exposure going forward and help encourage steps. To be taken to start taking these chemicals out of products um, and start at least um, disclosing to the public where these chemicals have been used and how you might be able to, to, um, to minimize your exposure. Because as you said, because these chemicals have been used for so many decades and so many different products and processes. including firefighting foams that have been used and sprayed out near military bases and airports, you've got widespread um, contamination of drinking water Mm -hmm. across the country. And drinking water is a primary source of getting this into your body and into into your blood. Um, So you want to be able to, to stop those exposures. And most of the regulatory agencies that are looking at these chemicals now, the more we look at it, the lower... Um, the acceptable exposure levels are going. You know, the U.S. EPA came out in 2016 with a proposed uh, guideline of no more than 70 parts per trillion, um, and as states have come out and started looking at that and looking at even more recent data, those numbers have continued to drop. You know, there are states that are recommending 20, 14, 10. Mm. Now, some are even proposing single-digit part per trillion the safety guidelines. So you want to at least um, make sure that it's not in your water, um, and you want to make sure that you're not unnecessarily exposing yourself through products. Mm. So there are efforts underway, uh, particularly with the rollout of the film Dark Waters, uh, with the book coming out, to help. Try to make information available to the public about where these chemicals have been used in what products, and which companies are switching away from them now. There's a website, fightforeverchemicals.com, where different groups have tried to make that kind of information available to people. Now, one of the things, uh, particularly that the farming community, you know, wants to probably be aware of is. You know, this stuff is not only in the drinking water, but it um, oftentimes ends up at the wastewater treatment plants in mm-hmm. various cities and communities across the country where these chemicals through the wastewater treatment process are concentrated into biosludge which historically has been given out to farmers to spread on their fields mm. as fertilizer in different parts of the country. And unfortunately, what we're now seeing is some of that can get taken up through the crops and by the animals. So there are efforts underway right now to try to investigate you know, where that's happened and um, you know, what can be done to try to, to prevent any further contamination through those biosolids. Because this stuff is being found in food. Um, uh, you know, 3M did sampling as far back as 2001, finding it in bread and in milk and in various different products. And the FDA has recently released sampling um, also, you know, showing that it's still there in some of our food supply.
2: Yeah. I think there was, there was just a story I saw in the um, food and environment reporting network where another farm, a a dairy farm, I believe it was, um, the cows were, were drinking water that they found was contaminated as well. So you're right. I, there right, are lots of ways. Yeah. yeah. There are lots of ways that this would affect a farmer, um, potentially, and definitely food. Yeah, and you know, in just the food system in general. I think, I mean, we're learning now that, like you said, a lot of food packaging, even these kind of new generation um, compostable products, um, some of them are lined with, you know, like the compostable bowls are lined with the, with the coating. Um,
3: exactly yeah. and i was actually in europe and uh, just last week and speaking with the european parliament and in the uk parliament about you know the the food packaging concern and there were there have actually been a couple of companies over overseas that have now announced that they're going to try to take out all pfos from their from their supermarkets or from their food packaging you know to try to minimize this this um, uh, this this continuing source of exposure and unfortunately like you say it's um uh, has also been found in some of these compostable materials. So mm. it's ending up at composting sites.
2: Yeah. Well, you mentioned earlier, too, that, you know, there's this danger that as people, as we try to get rid of them and um, that there's a danger that they would get replaced by similar chemicals that maybe have also have their own issues. Um, are, from, from what you know so far, are there alternatives, safer alternatives that can be used um, that have some of the same properties?
3: yes, in fact um i you know that's one of the things that a number of companies are working on right now is to try to bring these alternatives and replacements out onto the market um for example, when we were in Europe last week one of the one of the examples that was that was discussed was the issue involving microwave popcorn in Denmark, um, the Danish authorities had identified the packaging. There is a um, you know, significant source of PFAS, and we're actually going to take that off the shelves. Um, and there was concern that there was no alternative at that point. Yet, once it was taken off the shelves, within a few months, somebody had come up with an alternative that did not involve any PFOS. Huh. And so that that product's now back on the market and back on the shelves in Denmark. So, um, to, to some degree, it, it it almost you know takes some of this um, being uh, you know some of this regulation coming out to push the innovation. And I think there are a lot of companies that. Um, you know, are are working on it right now, and seeing this as a tremendous market opportunity as well.
2: Right. So, and what about um, what about you? So, you know, you've kind of become the <laughs> the leader on this issue, um, and it's started with this one lawsuit with a farmer, extended to lawsuits representing communities with contaminated drinking water. It's been going kind of continuing from there. Are you still working on um, PFAS uh, lawsuits and to this day, or what's next?
3: Yes, um, in fact, you know, as this, uh, as the awareness has finally started to to spread, um, you know, and it's uh, you, you, people may have heard these chemicals also referred to as emerging contaminants, um, and you know, the the contaminants themselves are not emerging; <laughs> <laughs> they have been out there for decades. It's our awareness. That's now emerging, and as as that as that awareness has spread, not only across the country but across the world, um, the uh, people are seeking ways to get this out of their water. Um, communities are faced with incredible costs for filtering these chemicals. For you know, states are are faced with um, natural resources that have been damaged by this. You know, individuals are, are looking at um, you know how they've been exposed, and so there there are. Um, uh, a variety of 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 folks all over uh, the world that are that are now realizing the extent to which they've been harmed by these chemicals so i i'm trying to do what i can in a number of different ways to assist in 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 a wide, that wide variety of um of of contexts right Sounds and trying to wa- raise awareness and do like things through through your your show here, you know, trying to get the information out to people. Uh, it's it's remarkable um, given how long this has occurred and how many products this is in and how many water supplies are affected and the fact that it's in all of us. It's still amazing that most of us here, even in the U.S., have still never heard of PFAS.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I've definitely, I feel like, um, been hearing more and more, and it does seem like awareness is growing. So um, thank you for, for bringing this issue to the attention of the public, and thank you so much for coming on the show today.
3: Well, thank you so much for having me.
2: Thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next week. The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage_radio. radio. You can also find us at facebook.com heritageradionetwork.